Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 324. The purpose of the Climate Report is to solve the problem of climate change. That means actually solving the problem, not just pretending to solve the problem. It's my view that the most visible climate coverage and the most vocal climate activists really are not leading us in the right direction. Primarily, we're neglecting the importance of water cycles, we're neglecting the importance of ecosystems, all of which are you know, impacted by farming, etc., and also development. But we're neglecting the importance of social justice and the golden rule. I mean, show me a system where we treat others the way we would want to be treated, at least in theory, and then we'll talk. And we're also neglecting the danger of concentrated power, both in the form of corporate power and governmental power. It is my view that we will not formulate meaningful solutions to climate change as long as we're pretending as if the as if corporate power doesn't exist, as if monopoly power doesn't exist, as if our government is not owned by corporations and the wealthy. And then we also need to understand the dangers of concentrated governmental power in the form of defense, in the form of surveillance, in the form of agricultural policy and transportation policy, which is governed by anything but the rule of the people. These things are not governed by the will of the people. It's not a government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's a government of concentrated power and that needs to change. But uh, so what we're going to do today is look at three different articles. One deals with agriculture, uh, urban agriculture. One deals with California's drought and one deals with the supposed problems and real problems associated with animal agriculture. So the first article is from Lancaster University in Great Britain from January 24th of this year. Study shows urban Britain's potential as a grow your own nation. It reads, Britain's towns and cities have the potential to support an urban agricultural revolution that would help meet the dietary needs of a growing population, booth boost the nation's health and well-being, as well as reduce reliance on imports, a new study reveals. And it says here that we found that urban green spaces are significantly underused for food growing and that there is a huge untapped capacity in our towns and cities for people to grow more given support through targeted national policies. This could prove to be beneficial for, our, for improving access to healthier foods as well as boosting well-being through better connectedness to nature. So the article shows that, or the study that the article is based on shows that Britain and other places, very similar where we are in Louisville, Kentucky, but we have the opportunity to grow more of our food locally. So what opportunities does this represent to grow our food locally? For one thing, it, it's the opportunity to reduce carbon emissions because we're consuming food that originates closer to where we live. Currently, much of our food, a disturbing amount of our food comes from California and Florida. Think of all the miles that trucks have to travel to get from there to here. And it's also a situation in which food is bred for 
resilience uh, you know, for shelf life. In, like an apple is bred to be thick and tough instead of being bred for health and nutrition and maybe a slightly shorter shelf life. Another opportunity is that we can prepare for a world that is not fueled by artificially cheap fossil fuels. So the time is coming when we no longer have artificially cheap fossil fuels, but we have a food system that is based on artificially cheap fossil fuels. Fossil fuels that are subsidized directly by taxpayers when we, when we build roads and when we build pipelines and when we pay for defense. That is a huge subsidy for cheap oil. So by growing our food locally, we will prepare for a time when we do not have artificially cheap fossil fuels. Another opportunity is to reduce the environmental pollution associated with roads, fossil fuels, and nitrogen fertilizers. So nitrogen fertilizers cause a huge amount of water pollution. It's also nitrogen fertilizers cause a huge amount of carbon emissions because they fossil, I mean, uh, natural gas is used to make them. We also have an opportunity to get more nutritious food. Food grown locally will, on average, be more nutritious. For one thing, because it's fresher than food grown in other uh, localities. We have the opportunity to engage with the natural world. We have an opportunity to engage with our food production system by producing more of our own food more locally. And we have an opportunity to live closer to the earth all of which are excellent reasons to use urban green spaces to grow food instead of getting all of it from a supermarket which imports it on average from thousands of miles away, or at least on average 1,500 miles away. The next article is by Thomas Moore, who is a science correspondent with Sky News. This is also in the UK, Great Britain. The article is from February 2nd, 2022. It says, ending animal agriculture and planting trees on empty fields is the best chance to slow climate change, scientists say. A professor behind the analysis says that this is the biggest opportunity to turn back the clock on climate change and encourages other scientists to assess his conclusions with an open mind. It says that according to the study published in the peer-reviewed journal PLOS Climate, a third of the Earth's land area is used to raise and feed beef, raise and feed livestock an industry that is responsible for 16% of annual greenhouse gas emissions. But if trees were planted on the fields instead, they would remove 800 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The combined effect would be to effectively halt the increase in atmospheric greenhouse gases for 30 years, the scientists argue. Professor Brown said a 15-year phase-out of animal agriculture was not unrealistic. The Committee on Climate Change, which advises the UK government on its net zero plans, recognizes the challenge in convincing people to give up meat. Okay, I'm basically fundamentally not sympathetic with the conclusions of this, of the study or the article. For one thing, it says 16, you know, it says livestock industry is responsible for 16% of annual greenhouse gas emissions. So what they're doing there, one thing is they're assuming that 
uh, concentrated animal feeding operations are the only way to grow meat. So concentrated animal feeding operations are the ones that get the animal feed from monocultures of, of corn, monocultures of soy, which are themselves ecologically devastating. And yes, this is a carbon positive way of growing uh, livestock because for one thing, you're using lots and lots of nitrogen fertilizers. The feed has to be transported from miles and miles away. Uh, you're talking about feed that is grown through with tillage, which releases soil-based carbon into the atmosphere. And you're talking about an agricultural system which does not know what to do with the waste, does not know what to do with the manure, because you're bringing food in from many miles away, and you're just, you have all of this concentrated manure in one place, and there is not an economical way to process that waste, to turn it into compost, or to let it fertilize the soil. If you're taking cow manure and just spreading it over an open field, then that's, that's not, that does not have the effect of processing the manure in a way as to help the grass grow, or help trees grow, or help crops grow, or help the garden grow. So what we need instead are, is not an end to animal agriculture, but I mean, if, if, if your values say that you need to be vegan, that's your business. But if you're trying to take people who are not philosophically opposed to eating meat and trying to tell them they have to stop eating meat, then you have to provide ecological reasons for that. And the, you know, the vegan food industry is not providing ecological reasons to stop eating meat because all ecosystems have animals. What we need instead of these concentrated animal feeding operations, which are all animals and no plants, and then you have several farms over has, you know, all plants and no animals, you know, corn as far as the eye can see, soybeans as far as the eye can see. Well, that's not a biologically diverse system. That is not an ecosystem we need for our food to be grown in farms that mimic and resemble ecosystems. That means a biologically diverse farm so that nutrients can cycle, so that you know the plants and the animals and the insects and the birds and the water and the air can all be in this dynamic process, and the soil can all be in this dynamic process of exchanging nutrients the way it's done in nature. So the problem is not the mere existence of livestock. The problem is that the livestock has long since been removed from its ecosystem. So for example, when you have a cow that's in an ecosystem or, or a farming process that resembles an ecosystem, the cows are going to eat, you know, tall grass because they've you know, you don't want cows grazing on the same place day after day after day because in nature, cows are moving. They're, they're bunched up together and they're moving across these vast expanses and they're moving away from predators. They, 
they stay bunched up together. So in nature, let's you know, look at the buffalo herds. They would migrate northward for half the year and then migrate southward for half the year. So as they're migrating, they're, mag they're, they're going on to places that have lots and lots of unmowed grass. I mean, the grass they're eating might be three or four feet tall. It might be five or six feet tall. So the cows are eating tall grass and then they're, you know, they poop and they pee and they, they stomp that into the ground. And, all, and that ecosystem, the grassland ecosystem, is adapted for that. The grassland ecosystem thrives on that. So what we need to be doing today and what many farmers are doing successfully is strategically rotating animals. Maybe it's cattle, maybe it's something else, but cattle get most of the heat for climate change. But we need to have our cattle being rotated so that, you know, by the time they come back to a plot of ground, they haven't been there for at least three months, maybe a year or more. And these methods and processes have been worked out by people like Alan Savory, author of the book Holistic Management. You should look up Alan Savory, his uh, TED Talk, and find, at least find out what it's about so that there might be a bit of skepticism about this thing called a plant-based diet. Because when I think of a plant-based diet, it's like corn, as far as the eye can see, sprayed with glyphosate, genetically modified, using pesticides that are not only petroleum-based, but toxic to the natural world. You can, in theory, have um, you know, a vegan food system that works biologically, but that's not what we have, and it's much easier to incorporate animals into a farm that is biologically diverse and mimics the ecosystems in which these animals evolved. So the problems in the article that I just uh, read to you, read parts of it, one is it pretends that CAFOs are inevitable. So concentrated animal feeding operations, you know, it is assumed that if we have livestock, we have to grow it in concentrated animal feeding operations. No, we don't. We can grow livestock in smaller, more biologically diverse farms that mimic ecosystems. Number two problem in the article above is that we're not looking at car carbon negative ways of growing beef and other livestock. So by carbon ne negative, I mean that we have ways of growing livestock in such a way that carbon is being stored in the ground. We could be raising livestock in ways that store carbon in the ground. I was listening today to a conversation between David Anderson and John Kempf. Both of them are significant figures in the regenerative agriculture movement. And the only question was whether carbon, whether the soil carbon can be increased by half a percent per year or one percent per year. Well, that's huge because the, uh, in nature, the soils have something like four percent or six percent or eight percent carbon. So if you can increase it by half a percent per year, then in one or two decades, you have soil that is getting back to the natural levels of carbon. And if you look at it on a per hectare or per acre basis, this is huge 
amounts of carbon that can be stored if we will but change the way we grow livestock. And that's what I mean by carbon negative ways of growing beef and other livestock. Allowing the animals to produce the manure and, and rotating them strategically and allowing them to participate in nutrient cycles the way they do in nature. Problem number three with the article is that you know, all ecosystems have animals. We should be moving, we should not be hyper-focused on carbon dioxide absent the larger considerations of ecology, the larger considerations of we should want the earth to be crawling with the types of ecosystems that existed before we came along. And we can do this. Human beings can become a blessing to the earth. Human beings can become a net positive on the earth, but we need to resolve to design our food systems in such a way as to, mimic, as to mimic ecosystems. And that means we start with the principle that all ecosystems have animals. And we, especially for those of us who are not uh, ethically opposed to eating meat, we need to uh, you know, stop buying this guilt trip that says animals are inherently anti-ecological. Nothing could be further from the truth. Problem number four with this article above is show me an industrial food system that works. It's not about the problems of animal agriculture. Animal agriculture is a nonsensical term. Plant-based diet is a virtually nonsensical term. It's not about whether you're growing plants or animals. It's about whether you're growing food ecologically. An industrial food system by its very nature is anti-ecological because you're getting inputs that were grown in a way that was extractive. By inputs, I mean the food that the animals eat the cattle feed, and then the cattle feed is, is grown in a way that's extractive. The cattle feed is grown in a way that destroys the soil year after year, destroys the ecosystems year after year. That's an industrial food system. The opposite of an industrial food system is a closed loop system, a one where the waste of, of one, the waste is always utilized. In nature, waste is utilized. So whether it's animal manure or whether it's uh, you know clippings from plants, whether it's the carbon dioxide that the animals exhale, in a natural system, waste is utilized. So that's why we need biologically diverse farms because biologically diverse means it has different types of animals, different types of plants, and then you have nature getting into the act and you have different types of insects, including pollinators and beetles, etc. And this is a circular system, a closed loop system, a system where waste is an, a, a one the one person's output is another person's input, or one animal's output, one organism's output is the input for another organism.
Item number five, we need bi biologically diverse farms. We've already talked about that. Item number six related to this article is that we need a farming system that is not controlled by multinational monopolies that only want to extract profit from land, labor, consumers, ecosystems, and governments. So our food system is controlled by multinational monopolies, whether it's Dean Foods, whether it's Smithfield Foods, whether it's Tyson. These are companies that want, their purpose is to make a profit, of course, and they don't mind uh, extracting unsustainably from the land, extracting unsustainably from labor, uh, and from consumers and extracting from ecosystems and extracting from governments. These big multinational monopolies are in the business of extraction. They only want to make a profit. They are programmed to make a profit and they do so at our expense. So in contrast to what this article is trying to say that we need to transition from uh, meat, we need to get off meat. No, we need to get off of industrial food systems that are controlled by multinational monopolies. Let's look at the third of three articles. This is from Rachel Ramirez of CNN from February 3rd, 2022. It says 17 feet of snow sparked hope for quelling California's drought, then precipitation flatlined in January. So it says, after months of extreme drought, again, this is CNN, after months of extreme drought in the West triggered unprecedented water cuts and primed the landscape for massive wildfires, the final stretch of 2021 gave a tiny glimpse of hope for drought-weary Californians. So it says, California facing back-to-back -back dry years and record-breaking heat waves that pushed the drought into historic territory got a taste of the rain it was looking for in October when the first big storm of the season pushed on shore. Then in late December, more than 17 feet of snow fell in the Sierra Nevada, which researchers said was enough to break decades-old records. So the idea is that all of this is caused by quote-unquote climate change, and we are led to believe that climate change means the rise in temperatures. Not only the rise in temperatures, but the rise in global average temperatures, and that all of this is caused by increased greenhouse gases. That is partly true. There is a rise in global average temperatures that is caused, at least in part, by greenhouse gases. But what we're not talking about is how this uh, rise in temperatures and the consequent you know, weather extremes that come from that. We're not talking about how these, you know, the temperatures and the weather extremes, such as heat waves and drought and flooding, are caused as much as anything by how we've treated the land. Now, there's a really good book and movie called Kiss the Ground, and the author of the book, Kiss the Ground, is Josh Tickle, T-I-C-K-E-L-L, -L. and here's what Josh Tickle has to say about California. I think it's really compelling. It's going to tell us how, you know, the landscape has been changed. We've removed plant matter. When we remove plant matter, we also remove water cycles. We also remove ecosystems when we remove plant matter. And that removes the ability of the earth to regulate weather and temperatures. 
So Josh Tickle writes, CO2 emissions are not the root cause of California's worsening drought. Think of it this way. In the middle of California is the Central Valley, a 60,000 square mile, mostly flat piece of open arid land that has been cleared. So 60,000 square miles in the middle of California. Kentucky is only 40,000 square miles, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, Kentucky has 39,486 square miles. So increase that by 50% and you get the idea of the size of California's Central Valley. So this 60,000 square miles is a mostly flat piece of open arid land that has been cleared of its former ecosystem in order to perform large scale agriculture. A small fraction of it is covered in plants and water, if we're being generous, say 10%. So they're saying about 90% of California's Central Valley has been cleared of the plants that were once there, the plants and the ecosystems. He says the remainder, say 90%, is bare, hardened, mostly unplanted dirt, and reflective urban and suburban surfaces. So whether it's the farmland or whether it's the uh, urban and suburban surfaces, it's just it's reflective and it generates heat. So during the day it reflects heat into the atmosphere and, and absorbs heat, baking like a massive frying pan. All the while it is pushing clouds and rain away. Meanwhile its soils are eroding, which means food growers require ever more water. Now add to this man-made desertification the occurrence of season after season of CO2-assisted heat waves. So it's not just about CO2, it's about what we've done to the land, it's about taking a, you know, the green matter on the surface, including forests, including wetlands, which would otherwise be a solar-powered air conditioner, and turning it into a solar-powered hot plate. We can't blame all the warming, all the drought, all the flooding, all the heat waves, or all the forest fires on the amount of greenhouse gas in the air. We must account for the fact that we have removed the Earth's natural ability to regulate temperatures and to uh, formulate water cycles, to you know, spur water cycles. You know, the rain ultimately comes from plants, mainly. So I've got another couple of minutes. Let me leave you with something to think about. So I started off saying that the purpose of the climate report is to solve the problem of climate change. And this means actually solving the problem and not just pretending to do so. Most of the media coverage relating to climate change just wants to chew around the edges of the problem and even you know, divert us and distract us from what are some of the real uh, problems, whether we're talking about food production, whether we're talking about drought, whether we're talking about plant-based diet or the evils of animal agriculture. Most of this coverage is just distractions from what are the real problems. And you have to understand that the purpose of the media is not to inform you. The purpose of the corporate media is to distract you and support the interests of the big corporations and support the interest of con the concentrated power that is government. 
So I submit to you that what we need are holistic solutions that are designed to actually solve these problems. We cannot divorce climate from the real world that we really live in, including the world that produces food, the world that produces habitat for wildlife, the world in which we can have cleaner water and air or dirtier water and air. And we can't divorce our climate solutions from the reality of the concentrated power of business or the concentrated power of government. And in that regard, we need to understand that climate is not strictly a function of greenhouse gases. It is a function of land use. How do we use the land? What do we do to the land? And by the time we get done with the land, does it have functioning ecosystems and functioning water cycles? Or has it been stripped of everything that's needed for life and health? That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Have a great day.